On this week's episode, Lee Griffin talks about getting into some heavy fog. And I've had enough to drink now that I'm a little foggy on some things. But um, <laughs> Scott Boris reminds Lee about how manly he is. What was? The, what were the winds? Were the winds out of the north? Were you calm. getting calm? I was yeah, okay, flying. Perfect. I was flying, Lee. What are you talking about? Winds. And I use fancy words that I don't know the definition to. This is very short. Uh, we're hoping it percolates some great conversation. FAR 91.151, fuel requirements for flight in VFR conditions. It's visual flight rule conditions. Uh, this is basically airplanes you calculate kind of in time versus some like vehicles and boats. You think more of gallons and distance and stuff you can do, which you do that in planes too, but the timing aspect, is that a fair assessment, I think, for different stuff if you're not an well, aviator? It's a time new format to think right. about it. Yeah, well, it's, but the time, because you, if you run out of gas, you are hosed compared to, to other things. Yeah. So they, well, I guess then the, yeah. uh, the requirements are in time units, not distance units. So. Exactly, yeah. So we'll get yeah, right into it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we'll get right into it. Uh, this is very short. Uh, we're hoping it percolates some great conversation. Uh, Part A, no person may begin a flight in an airplane under VFR conditions unless, considering wind and forecast weather conditions, there is enough fuel to fly to the first point of intended landing and assuming normal cruising speed one during the day to fly after that for at least 30 minutes or two at night to fly after that for at least 45 minutes. And we'll just wrap up. Uh, Part B is pertinent to helicopters. No person may begin a flight in a rotorcraft under VFR conditions unless, considering wind and forecast weather conditions, there is enough fuel to fly to the first point of intended landing and, assuming normal cruising speed, to fly after that for at least 20 minutes. So to break that down, we'll skip helicopters for unless we get to it later because none of us fly rotors yet. Um, during the day... You got to be able to fly the entire flight you have planned and still have enough fuel left over to fly for 30 minutes after that. And at night, you got to increase that by 15 minutes to 45 minutes. Um, so your whole planned flight needs to be completed and then still have in the tank enough fuel to fly for at least 30 or 45 minutes, depending on whether it's a day or night. Is that a fair summary? That's it. Yeah. Nailed it. So when we do this, you got to factor in if you're just flying around the pattern, this is pretty straightforward. Um, you just make sure you're not flying around the pattern beyond 30 or 45 minutes, depending on whether it's day or night. And, but if you're like planning cross countries and stuff, this is where you, you got to get into some, some math and some planning to, to make sure that you are complying with 91, Yeah. You got to yeah. figure out your ground speed. Your fuel burn, yeah, fuel burn is a speed, which is affected by the altitude, um, ground speed. Oh, what other? What am I missing else? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, power setting altitude yeah. is really now. I mean, obviously the per hour. So what you were trying to say earlier is we measure in planes gallons per hour. So it's kind of a you know that that's kind of where you're used to cars miles per gallon. 
because you know that you're gonna you're gonna set you know something your cruise control to seventy five, and you're gonna let your your miles per gallon fluctuate. You you know what I mean. Where yeah. here we're gonna set a power setting, which is gonna only gonna we can't set an airspeed really like you can in a car on a cruise control. So we measure everything in gallons per hour, and then the wind is gonna help us or is gonna hurt us how far we go in that one hour. We're always going to go the same distance every single hour going 75 miles an hour. It's a different metric of measurement. And so our, our, our fuel burn, uh, our gallons per hour is going to change for us depending on the head. Or, um, well, your miles per gallon my, is going to change. Your miles yeah. per gallon is going to change in a car, you know, if you have that headwind or our gallons per hour, the way we measure it in planes. In mo- boats, right? Boats are gallons per hour, aren't they? I don't yeah, even know. Most, most people don't do it in boats. They just kind of have a general idea. Boating, as we discussed in some previous episodes, um, a lot of the boating clear. population aren't as concerned with this type yeah. of thing. But like down here in Florida, going back and forth to Bahamas, um, you, unless you're an idiot, you, you do some calculations. But you're doing like miles per gallon and stuff. And you're factoring maybe... Gulf Stream, but there's no like E6B calculators and stuff for for boats like there is for airplanes where you can just really dial in in your pre-flight planning unless forecasts change, which they do except for forecast changing you can pretty much dial it in um, pretty accurately if you have been properly trained and, and do what you were trained to do. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess I would say the same for, you know, pilots you know but you have to yeah you there's definitely a lot of variables to factor in to get the whole picture which is kind of what you're getting at yeah so let's say we're on a pre-flight we're going to make something up we're going to an airport 100 nautical miles away in a 150 and we're flying west what's the first thing we're doing we're looking up Weather reports. We're on four flight. Scott, you're just plugging in the numbers and right. four flight floor flights. You, floor, but floor flight. Four flight is going to tell you whether or not you're going to have enough fuel. Right. Which 100 yeah, nautical miles, you're going to be fine. But uh, if you're well, not, if, you you, if you're not headwind. Using, yeah. Well, if you, well, that's true. You'd have to be pretty pretty serious headwind. But if you're not using four flight, you want to figure out what your uh, what your ground speed's going to be. Okay, let's do let's do two hundred. Let's we're trying to do commercial cross country requirement solo. So we need two hundred fifty miles. And Lee, I know you pointed out that you don't have to do that nonstop, uh, like we assumed. But let's assume you didn't know that, and you're just like, I need to go nonstop two hundred and fifty nautical miles to complete that commercial solo requirement to get my commercial license under Part sixty one in a one fifty going west now okay. are we worried about that's that's stretching it scott that is stretching it to 150 250 I've done it yeah i've if done you, it i've done that exact going west you, in a 150 if you got no wind or if you got a tailwind you're fine but if you get a headwind that could be a little it could be cutting it a little close or a crosswind that's gonna still eat up your ground speed well what 
I mean, you're saying, I mean, are you saying 90 degrees? I mean, it's never truly, you got to do, remember, you're doing a three, a triangle. So it's going to mitigate the average yeah. um, on one of the legs at the very least. So remember when you're looking at it, it may look really, really bad. Like, oh my God, it's going to, it's taken me, uh, for some other reason, I didn't look at the wind. So I didn't know my ground speed is going to be as slow. Well, you just I'm gonna, Well, correct. That's, that is true. <laughs> but you've made it to your first point. You do your touch and go or whatever you're going to do. And then you do your next segment. So you need three segments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you do your next segment and that's, you know, maybe a little bit better or a little bit worse. But remember that leg finally coming home, you're going to be screaming. If it hurt you that bad getting there. So, yes, it looks really, really bad. Oh, well, man, right, but we're talking about it. We're talking about a straight shot. 250 miles we're not talking about legs i uh, don't you have to do three don't you have to do three points of landing yeah but we're talking about to, the longest leg yeah you have to we're cover about flying eight you have to cover 300 point. nautical miles total i think for the requirement one of okay okay one, so the, one okay one of the legs has to be 250 the, i think I the, okay yeah i is that accurate I, or does the furthest point have to be it could be right. If not, I'll edit it all out and make us sound smart. Yeah. But well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to look since you brought, I mean, since you brought it up. I mean, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So we need one. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. One cross country flight of not less than 300 nautical miles total distance with landings at a minimum of three points. One, so you guys are correct. One of which is a straight line distance of at least 250 nautical miles from the original. Oh, well, that doesn't really matter. Um, at least 250 nautical miles straight line distance from, from the, the original, original point of departure. You could have a stop in between, but let's say that you want you could to have stop. a billion stops. You stop, yeah, yeah, yeah Let's times. say that you wanted to do a straight but shot, I, 250 yeah. miles. Yeah. Okay, I yeah. literally didn't know that when I did that back in the day because I wasn't a, a CFI or anything yet at that time because I'm working right. on my commercial. So I did. I thought I had to do nonstop. So I just I literally did nonstop. I think to Illinois. From Ohio, somewhere. I'm where looking did, at my logbook. I can did, find it. Where did we fly this last summer, Rob? How long was that? That was the dual cross country. Yeah. I'm not sure how long the requirement was. We did whatever, whatever it was. It was. Yeah, it. I don't, I don't yeah. remember. But. That was day the dual day yeah. cross country, and yeah. we still got to do the dual night maybe this summer from up there. Hopefully. But anyway. Back to the fuel requirements aspect of it. So you could have a 25 knot headwind and it should be okay. In a 150? Yeah. For that long, the long straight line 250? Yeah. I wouldn't do okay. it. Okay. Non- so yeah. 250, 250 miles divided by 75 knots is what I did. Okay. okay. Yeah. Equals, you know, some, uh, well, two. What, you're, what? You're, well, okay, my 150 is not going to do 75 knots ground speed with a 25 knot headwind. It's going to do more like 65. I had a light crosswind, and it was okay. like I was low on fuel. It was the most I ever put in put but in didn't the you do? Didn't you do like 300 is, miles, though? No, it was like 260, I think. Okay. Well, and I guess it needs to be, oh, oh, it says at least 250, not more than, but at least 250 nautical miles from the original point of departure. Okay, so I just did 250 nautical miles divided by 75 knots. 
I mean, so 75, I mean, 75 knots. That's 86 miles an hour. Yeah. You can't, you won't get 86 miles an hour. Especially if you're flying at 1500 feet, like you do. If you do that, yeah, you're none of this is going to work for you. I'll fly at 500 feet. Yeah, that's not helping the cause, though. You're, yeah, I did not. I did not go up to altitude for that operation. That's that dude, th- guys. This is oh my god. I'm gonna have to Damn. break out. Uh, uh, I'm gonna have to break out the church music break again. The yeah. church, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Here he goes again, preaching about <laughs> preaching about altitude. Now in the winter, or whatever. Yeah, the winds may just increase as you climb. Right. So I'll stay and at I the get that level. <sighs> All right. Okay. I guess, I'm, Rob, you, you go ahead not, with where you want to drive. You're not staying at treetop level. I know. I'm kidding. I'm just trying to come off flight. I'm just trying to get I think I went, I went up to like I would think Doesn't I went up to like much. three or four, maybe yeah. 5,000 yeah. range. Obviously, the 500, I'm it, taking if, into consideration. I'm going to look at the winds. If if I have If the winds are getting stronger as you go up and it's a headwind, then I'm going to stay low. If the winds are getting lighter as you go up, well, they're not going to lighter. Gonna. They're not going to. But if the winds are getting stronger as you go up, and it's a tailwind, then I'm going to go up higher. Yes. Plain and simple. Now, so, remember, there's a break-even point, though. They can still go up, and you can still be ahead. Yeah. You have to remember, I mean, you're gaining 2.5% true airspeed every 1,000 feet. Yeah. On a standard day. I mean, so if it's if it's really bumpy, if it's a really bumpy day, there's even more incentive to climb higher because then, well, if it's bumpy, typically it's warmer. Well, I mean, I guess that's not true, but it doesn't always get smoother up high, though. You have a better you have a better chance of it being smoother up higher than lower. You're away from the Earth's heat. Hello, future Rob breaking in here at the uh, recording desk. I just wanted to throw in some context to the story that's coming up. Uh, this flight that Scott's talking about is the Lake Erie Islands, the western basin of uh, Lake Erie. And um, so when they're referencing lake and stuff, uh, that's the lake they're talking about. Uh, just so you know, since they so rudely left that piece of information out, I thought I would throw it in here. Now back to the show. The other, the yeah. other week I was flying and... It was really weird because at 1,400 feet MSL, it was like uh-huh. dead smooth. Yep. At 1,500 feet, it was bouncy. Temperature inversion. Is that common? Temperature inversions are not that common. No. What, was it like the evening? Yeah. 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 Temperature inversion. Because I was climbing so, out. I was climbing out and I was like, man, it's a nice smooth night. And I was, you know, I, used to, I was just flying around the the area you know at 1500 feet above sea level and uh as soon as i got up to 1500 it, it started getting bouncy and then i was like okay i'm gonna check this out a little bit and drop back down to 1400 it was dead smooth went back up to 1500 bouncy and i tried it i tried it a couple times just to test my theory and it was true yes yeah. scientist scott i know and this is important stuff to, to think about. So, like, when you think about it, so, and I've had enough to drink now that I'm a little foggy on some things. But um, <laughs> the, if you think about it, so, like, I, I guess I don't know what time the evening is, but, and maybe this won't apply to your scenario. 
But when you think of a temperature, so a t- on a standard day, temperature or on a, any day, really, temperature basically decreases as you gain altitude. Right. And so when you kind of get into, you know, the, the, like a fall evening and the sun is, you know, maybe setting whatever, or, or you know, cl- you know, it's going down and the, the, the earth starts, starts cooling down, you know, cause there's no sun on it. And so now you have, you know, I, I don't want to say this, the ground is radiating cold, but it kind of is. The ground is cooling down and the air above it is still warm. Right. So well, now you, we're on the lake, so it's definitely cooler, lower. Well, and, and you and you have that a lot. And, and, and we get a lot of stability off the lake, too. If the wind comes out of the north or northeast or something like that, we tend to get a lot of stability off that because yeah. it kind of evens everything out because the lake is a consistent temperature. Yeah. I hate it when um, I'm like flying around up here. And then I was like, oh, I got to go get gas at Norwalk. And I get like two minutes south and it starts getting all bouncy. Yeah, you're away from that stability. Yeah, yeah the, the con- consistently heated or um, cooled air, you know, the uniformly cooled air that, that we're used to here. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, that, what you were probably experiencing was a temperature inversion. Normally, you, that's you can see that very easily, not, not really from the ground, but once you're in flight, you can see almost a brownish, a brownish layer, almost looks like a smog layer. Yeah. And maybe the lighting condition wasn't conducive for you to see that. But if you see that, I mean, you already know because it's glass smooth. And then you can start thinking, okay, maybe there's a temperature inversion right now. And then if you just kind of look for kind of a brownish band, it, you'll 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 start to see. And that's why some areas get, get these smog is it, uh, really bad on when there's temperature inversions. Kind of puts a cap on it. There's no vertical right, movement. Can't go anywhere. Yeah, you know, you need the air, the the earth to be heated, the air to be rising, and that's going to kind of, you know, that's how we get the buildup of clouds, you know, cumuliform clouds. So if you don't have that vertical movement of air, convection, as we know, it is vertical movement of air. If you don't have that, it's not evenly dispersing all that particulate smog and stuff like that. So the inverse is true. It's going to keep it down. When it gets emitted, when the smog gets emitted out of a metropolitan area, out of all the tailpipes and industry, it's not gonna. It's not gonna rise. It's gonna stay down low. So those would be some of the smooth, the, the smog group, like a, a smog alert in LA would probably be the best smoothest day to go fly. Hmm. Just I because did not of know that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you you just need to think. You don't if 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 the molecules can get lifted and then evenly kind of dispersed vertically. That is going to give you the bumps. That's that's that convective vertical movement of air, you know, um, that, that we see. And so, if you not only not only do, is it not rising, and it's not rising because it's not warm enough. You're not getting the the two degrees per thousand feet drop. You know, we're getting you know one degree, one and a half degrees. I think one and a half degrees defines stable air. So we get one and a half degrees Celsius or less. Uh, drop per thousand feet that's gonna be really really stable air and that's those are gonna be the conditions that are that are or on a temperature inversion it actually cools uh warms up as you go higher which was likely the situation you had scott i don't right. know what time okay so i would say when was this when did you do this like probably about, a month, probably about a month probably ago a month ago yeah. okay so maybe you were spring, probably going to time anyway for okay for so time. sunset was seven o'clock i don't know Six thirty. Uh, well, probably a little later than that. Okay. 
Okay, so seven thirty. Yeah. Uh, you probably went flying uh, an hour, hour and a half before sunset. Probably, yeah. So those are all. That's the perfect condition for that ground. The sun is no longer beating down on the ground, so the ground is already cooling. The sun is still up. The ground right. is already no longer getting that direct UV light that gets turned in infrared, which we know is heat. That has stopped. Right. So now well, and I was cool flying around the lake too, so I'm getting the cool air off the water. So yeah, but you would still get that up at 1,500 feet too, though. Well, yeah, I suppose. What was the, what were the winds? Were the winds out of the north? Were you calm. getting calm? I was yeah, okay, flying. Perfect. I was flying, Lee. What are you talking about? Winds. I don't fly, <laughs> I don't fly in the wind. Well, I'm trying. Okay, so I'm trying. I'm trying to m- bring like, r- like, kind of real world. Let somebody think about this when they're like driving out to the airport for their next flight lesson. But yeah, I mean, temperature inversion. If it, if, if not only if it does not cool, but if it actually warms up. Which so the scenario we just painted is the sun's, you know, kind of more going down, not down. You know, not it's not on the horizon yet, but it's no longer directly on the ground, and we've started towards the cooling of the evening. We're not getting that infrared. We're not get, we're not heating up the Earth's surface. So if it's not heating up, that means it's cooling. So if it's cooling, that means the the and the sun is still up. It's heating up the the air adjacent to the ground at some level, of course. And you know the the closer you get to the sunset, the 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 higher you could probably go because the and have that cool that cool in, uh, inversion because the ground has been cooling for longer. So that that layer that we're looking for it may have gone up to twenty five hundred or so. That's why it's always so smooth at night. Yeah, I love night flying. Other than the fear of death, right? Yeah, the constant fear of death. Yeah. Well, <laughs> night night flying is my favorite. The the thing about night flying scares me is like if you have an engine failure, you just pretty much hope you don't hit anything because no, know. no, you're done. You no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you hope your life insurance policy is paid up. Right. If That's you don't it. like what you see, just turn your landing light off. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Scott's already burned out. He's got incandescent. Yeah. He's yeah. already burned out. That's the way to go, Lee. Incandescent. That LED stuff is too fancy. Dude, oh, it, I mean, it would change your life. I would almost. No, I'm. I, I just. You know what I don't understand is. Okay. Why are they more expensive? Who knows, man? Who knows? It'll. it'll a. It'll I come down. It. I can buy LED lights for my house, you know, like the standard screw and light bulbs. They're cheaper than the incandescents. I can get LED lights online for like 89 cents a piece. It'll change as it time right. goes on. Exactly. Aviation's that's always going to be more expensive that's, than that's residential. That's what I'm waiting for. Okay. It's going to yeah, be they, cheaper to put it's going to be cheaper to put new lights and make your plane set up really good than put it on the runway, Scott. Think of think of it that way. That is true. Think of what it costs you to put runway lights in, like what twenty five hundred feet. Yeah. yeah, I mean these days I could just put little solar lights out there that would work fine. But yeah, that's what we've been saying for decades. Um, back. <laughs> yeah, but, but now, I, now I just, I just steal some of those like LED strips off a motorcycle, hook it to a motorcycle battery, and just yeah, set it out there with a F-A-A little solar panel. Um, okay, back to, back to your, you're going to a solo lesson, let's say, which the FAA considers solo flight as your student pilot, a lesson, right? I saw some wording in a book one time. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Yeah, because I mean it's considered flight training. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's a weird it's weird. You I guess you really have to get into it, but I it's think similar it to like doctors how they go their entire career calling a practice, which always made me feel weird. Anyway, so you're going for your cross country flight, um, and you need to do your fuel calculations because you're not just going around the pattern. You're not going out to the training area and back where the math is pretty simple. You're doing a, a long cross country, and so you're going to break out the POH pilot's operating handbook. And in there somewhere, unless your plane is older than dirt, um, if you're in a reasonably modern airplane, it's going to break down, uh, there's going to chart in RPM settings. And next to each RPM, it's going to be a fuel burn rate uh, and a airspeed. Is that right? It's been a while since I looked at one. And that's how you're basically starting your math for for this calculation, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Basically, I don't know that it's going to give you. It may. It may be a couple charts to get you what you're getting at. I okay. mean, the the power setting and the fuel flow. That will. You're 100 percent right. You may need to go to like another chart to get that. Well, yeah. There's a chart speed. because at different altitudes, all of those are going to change. So that's another dynamic. The higher you go, the less your fuel rate's going to be. Well, not if you're running a consistent power setting. No, you're not leaning out, and that's that's not going to alter. No, you your... will, but you're also increasing the RPM too. Okay. I don't. Uh. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that if you're running the consistent RPM that you're burnt, or uh, I'm sorry, consistent power setting. So per, power setting is rating in percentage of power, not RPM. Like in cars, we think of, oh, you know, power, it goes up as, you know, our RPM goes up, which, yeah, of course is true. But we can keep eventually in a piston-powered airplane, you're running the throttle wide open. So your fuel flow should be and it's been a while, but you should have 75% is going to burn, you know, in a 150, what is it? 6.8 gallons an hour. I don't even know I whether you're at sea. What is it? I always use six as 75%. Just as, just as an average, like cruising flight, it's usually around Okay. Six. Well, yeah. And, and that's fine. And that's fine. So, um, yeah. So if you say at 75% at sea level, if you can still make 75% at 5,000 feet, it should still be um, six gallons an hour or whatever it was at sea level if you're okay. running the same percentage of power. Okay. So you're doing – basically, you're looking at your – what I was getting at, you're going in the pilot's operating handbook, and you are figuring out what your gallons per hour are going to be based on the flight you're about to perform. So you figure, you've gone in your pilot's operating handbook. you figured out your gallons per hour. And then you've figured out what airspeed you're going to be getting out of that. Now, this is different than your ground speed, um, that you're calculating the wind direction, uh, which is the E6B calculations, which Lee has the fancy, dancy, old-school hand-slide rule thing. And I... I use the electronic one, and Scott just punches it in floor yeah, flight. Basically, best for, best thing you can do. What, is, I'm sure you have a smartphone. Download floor flight. Put your <laughs> aircraft performance information in, and then you're that's that's all you have to do. 
most modern airplanes, I think if you go for the $300 a year one, it already has performance data preloaded in. Okay. For well, yeah. most of the aircraft. You just, you just select your aircraft yeah. and it, it'll do it for you. And it takes yeah. a factor of almost everything. Yeah. yeah. You should still know what you're doing beyond yeah. fourth flight and you're well, required yeah, to know you what you're doing beyond fourth flight if you're going for a rating. Yeah, and you, and obviously for a check ride, you're going to need to know how to do it. But yeah, I don't think a DE designated examiner is going to like. Oh, you just punch it in four flight, and it's magic, right? Well, four flight is like, you know, like if I'm driving somewhere in my car anymore, I don't even look at street signs. I just turn when the GPS tells me to turn. That's basically what four flight is. It just does everything for you. You don't have to pay attention, you know? Right. Yeah, I guess where I would say just the problem is, is you just keep using that as a crutch before you know it. You don't know. I mean, I don't know how far we are off from that just being accepted well, that you just don't know the math behind right. it. And I don't think it's a good idea for like a commercial pilot to do it that way. But like somebody who's just flying around occasionally for fun, like I don't think it's a big deal that you use for flight all the time. Well, and that's why we have flight reviews, you know, you know, do you, you do day in, day out, you do it one way. And then when you're going to be kind of under scrutiny or whatever, do some research, relearn what you forgot. I mean, we do that when we go in for our every six months, I go, I go into the simulator every six months and I got to study before I go in. They ask me stuff that you don't use in the day in, day out flying of the airplane. You got to relearn it. Yep. Just the way it is. And so, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say some of it should be so basic. It's not like we're talking about super difficult stuff here. Doing all the computations on an E6B, even the E6B is tricky enough to use as it is. But just get out a pen and paper and a calculator, and you can, for a lot of the stuff, figure out, I think, maybe not win correction angle, but simple math will tell you most of what you need to know as far as how much fuel you need to get somewhere. Get your forecasted winds aloft. I mean, what do you think, Rob? Get your yeah, forecasted winds aloft. Forecasted winds aloft, which is that weather piece of information usually has different wind speeds coming from different directions depending on what altitude you are at. And um, you're basically, when you're looking at that, you're looking at what is the lowest headwind I could possibly have or the... If, if you have a tailwind, you're looking at altitudes where it's it's more robust tailwind because that's going to help you out and uh, make you go faster over the ground. Mm-hmm. So Lower your fuel burn. Yeah, because yeah, if you're going 100 knots airspeed and you got a 20-knot headwind, you're doing 80 knots over the ground versus if that's a tailwind, you're doing 120 knots over the ground. And that's right. going to throw, that's going to completely change your fuel calculations based on the amount of time you have in the air. So basically, you're taking those gallons in your tank off of those charts, and you're extrapolating your fuel burn, and that's your time in the air. And you're trying to figure out, to sum up these calculations, um, and like when I get to my destination, how long is it going to take to get to the destination at the airspeed I'm calculating? And then it's, it's just the basic math of, okay, I have X amount of time with this many gallons at this fuel burn rate uh, that I'm staying in the air. And now I've done the calculations to figure out how 
um, how long it's going to take me to get there based on my airspeed and everything. But then you're making sure you, if it's daytime, you have a minimum of 30 minutes. And if it's nighttime, you have a minimum of 45 minutes uh, remaining in the tanks uh, when you're on the ground at that destination. And that pretty much sums up uh, the law here. They just, they don't want you pushing it to the, to the minimums. They want that 30 extra minutes in case there's something, you know, you've, oh crap, um, something changed, you know, there's not an alternative airport around or having trouble finding the airport. You know, this is pre GPS days where that happened more commonly. And at night you tack on an extra 15 minutes, which I mean, 15 minutes isn't much when you're, if something's going wrong, 15 minutes isn't a lot of time, but they want that little extra cushion at night because it's easier not to find something at night versus the day. And they're just basically trying to idiot proof, um, flying with this reg, which I would recommend having more than these minimums in, in most situations anyway, especially at night. Yeah. I mean, just right. the, yeah. yeah, especially at night. I would. What I would say is remember if you get into a certain type of airplane and I'm sure we can name numerous examples, it this seems like it's not, it's not a big deal, but if you think if you want to fly an airplane within its weight and balance envelope, and you're taking a lot of people and a lot of baggage or something, that means you may not be able to take that fuel, depending on the airplane, of course. So you're leaving precious fuel behind, which is where I see, you know, the standard GA, you know, yeah, you know you're going to do a fuel stop in three hours or four hours, whatever the case may be. But when you start loading on people or baggage, that's fuel you have to leave behind now. Just keep it legal within the weight and balance, you know, criteria by the manufacturer. So you can really start chopping off some range, you know, when you take the people in the bag. So that's where I see a lot of this, you know, in the training environment, you're topping it off all the time, you know. And so you're, you know, oh, uh, um, a 172, maybe, I don't even know what they hold, 50 gallons. Let's go with 50. I mean, whatever. A archer, a warrior hold 50. Um, so I'm assuming 172 does. Um, you know, you hold 50 gallons and you're used to just like, okay, it burns 10 gallons an hour. I have five hours of fuel and, you know, I want to be conservative. That means I can plan a four and a half hour flight and land with 30 minutes left. Well, yeah, that makes sense. But when you load up all four people, you know, all four seats and now, well, man, I can only take, you know, I can only take 30 gallons or whatever, whatever the math works out to be. Well, you're leaving 20 gallons behind. That's a significant portion of your range. So now you've fundamentally changed, you know, the the range and endurance of the airplane. And that is where stretching to that far corner. Um, th- these are trainer airplanes, so they're not used that way that often. But if you were to use one that way, you get in that corner, that's when you can really start looking at, like I keep harping on, going higher, playing some games with some things and try and really, really run out the max range of the airplane. And another thing I wanted to bring up was, um, um, power settings. This is people hate this and we fly airplanes to go fast. But if you go from 75 and I happen to have, it's going to take me a second to flip to it. I just happen to have in my office here, a, a Piper warrior, um, p- pilots operating handbook 
And I have here engine performance, which would be the chart in this particular airplane that would show you. Um, so like we were talking about earlier, if you want to extrapolate across a couple different um, performance pages. So this says at 55% power. So we have best power and a best economy number. Best power is basically leaned to just like it says best power. Best economy is really going to be a certain percentage or a degrees lean or rich of peak. That's this. That's a leaning function. These are both leaning function numbers. I'm just going to go with the the. That's a conversation for another day. But if even if we just go best power at 55, so that's how most people would fly uh, as best power settings. 55% is 7.8 gallons per hour. 65% is 8.8 gallons per hour, and 75% is 10 gallons an hour. So if we look at those, I, and I don't have the calculator out, but you can see, and you'd have to go to another to, to prove my point, but take my word for it, you can do your own math in the airplane you're learning in. You can sacrifice 5, 10, 15% of your airspeed, okay, which may be painful, but that could save you 30 or 40% in fuel burn. I've done a lot of research on that. I've had a lot of debates, a lot of talks about it. Look at your airplane, especially if you're okay with leaning, which I'm okay with leaning. There's tons of studies out there about leaning the airplane to a best uh, economy mixture setting. If you do that, look at the difference from best power at 75% of 10 gallons an hour to best economy of 6.6 .6 gallons an hour. Think about that. That's a lot. That that's, that's huge. That's three point yeah. four. That's three point four gallons per hour. That's a thirty percent fuel savings. But aren't you going to give you? You're also putting more hours on the airplane too, which is an expense. That's true. But I've also created graphs, and I can show you those another time that show even though Not you a, are, if you plug in your fuel dollar, you know how much it costs per gallon. When you deduct that and you change it, your your overall operating cost does go down. Because you're saving so much on gas, which is the most expensive thing about flying airplanes, is the fuel. If you ever need a consultant on airplane purchases, it's F-A-R-A-I-M at LeeGriffing.com. Um, I know the next plane I buy, I am not going to buy one without consulting him because he literally does have the graphs and stuff charted out what's, like that. Lee, what's the best four-place aircraft to buy? Well, I mean, that's kind of for, subject. That's for sub under, so for subject. Under, possible. For under 30,000. Under 34 place airplane? Yeah. Try Pacer. Yeah. Absolutely. Been 1954, 1954 or newer. I've been looking at it. You want, you want 150 horse. You want an 0320. I think it's A2B, I think is the yeah. dash number. What about the 160 horse? Try pacers. That'd be fine, but one fifty, yeah, one fifty is is all you need. Yeah. You're not going to see. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah, obviously you always want that, but right, but you don't um, need it. Yeah, I mean, because it's really only like like actually, it's only like eight more, seven or eight more horsepower. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, it's it's really, classified yeah. as a one sixty, yeah. but I think it's like one fifty seven or one fifty eight. Yeah. yeah. I I mean I do the I do the one fifty myself. Just because yeah. it's low compression, I don't know why. I just I just like that better. Right. Same thing with the Super Cub for me. One fifty is fine for me. But if you're using it for work, I, those seven or eight horsepower might matter to you. But uh, yeah, Tri Pacer. I mean, it's you know it does the same job an Archer does, and almost a comparable speed, 120 knots. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think like 117, but a lot cheaper. Basically, useful loads. A lot cheaper. Yeah. Oh, useful loads still good. You know, if, I yeah. mean, uh, I mean, I think those are like what two, 2200 pounds gross weight. I'm not sure. It's yeah. been a long time, but but so when you have, you're good. The aircraft purchase, there's a rule of thumb as far as like seating. You basically, is it one seat's always a decoration when you're you're just for practical purposes? Like if it's a four-seat airplane, it's basically for practical purposes a three-seat airplane, even though there's four seats physically in there? Or, no, or is, I wouldn't I know say there's that. some sort of rules for that. My My personal thing is I always told people and i believe this myself personally we're we're at a precipice well not a precipice but we talk about it commonly you know in my family life here um i acknowledge that i need i should get two more seats than i think i will ever need so if i want if i want if i have a family of four and i want to take off with full fuel and stretch the full legs of that airplane I need I need to have the payload, the useful payload available. From uh, like a Saratoga. Of a Saratoga or a Cessna 206 or something like that. Yeah. I love the 206. Well, 206 wait, on float is one of my dream airplanes. For sure. If you got a family of four, what do you need a 206 for? Because you want to be able to take full fuel. So you couldn't do full fuel and four people in a 172 no no not, and, and not and even a 182 not even a 182 yeah, exactly. a 182 are you kidding me no you can't no way they hold 80 gallons of gas dude uh, i bet i bet you could okay well how much what's well first off let me stump the chump here how much what's the gross weight on a 182 i have no idea okay well that's the first one you're wrong <laughs> what else you got Okay, so do you think you should be 182s take off out of here with four people in them, and that's like they don't even use a quarter of their own? Was that was it legal to do though? It's not about takeoff and landing distances, dude. And where are they flying? Kelly's Island, which is two minutes away. I don't know how much flying nautical miles away. I've seen 182s take off on a grass strip, and they're off the ground in like 800 feet. So you don't know anything about the actual no, weight I of don't. that airplane when it took assume, off. I just assume that. No, no, like, no, 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 no. Hold on. No, no. Let me. You let me. Did you hear what I said? Yeah, I hear you. You don't know anything about the weight of what that airplane was that you saw. No, but they could have been running on fumes. Well, they could be, but I assume that they'd still be all right if they had a full tank. They'd still make it off the ground. The no, Lake Erie okay. Island. Okay, put it this way. I've seen a Saratoga with six passengers and a bunch of baggage take off without any problem at all. And we've all seen that. So we, we have, but there is, okay, well, this just got ugly quick. Um, <laughs> you have to remember that, you know, operate within the PO, the pilot's okay. operating handbook. Well, I'm just telling you I'm, what I've witnessed with my own eyes. I've seen Saratogas take off. And as much baggage as you could barely shove in there and still get the doors closed. And it didn't have any problem getting off the runway. So an extraordinarily bad idea that you wouldn't want to do in your normal flight okay. profile but, as but a no. normal pilot. Well, this podcast ever. hasn't seen that happen. 
No <laughs> crickets. Well, yeah, and we've seen see. we've seen the craziest stuff in aviation right. between the three oh, of us okay. because I'm of saying, like, where we grew up, like the operations we've been around since we were kids. So you're telling me that you couldn't put four people and full fuel with some baggage into a 182 and still take off. Of course you could. Yeah, but not legally. No, but you could. And you don't, well, that's we need to preface it. I mean, there's people that are going to watch this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's and that, that we did not have full. Two. I've Only never, I've never seen that pack to get. I didn't go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. A 182 has plenty of power that if you want full fuel and four passengers, you're going to make it off the ground. There's not a doubt in my mind. And I'm going to run the numbers here on the side and see exactly or close to probably what that airplane weighed when it took unless off. This will be unless you're hauling four 300 pounders around. I mean, okay. Well, I, and I, I've I, never I've never seen that situation that you described with a Saratoga with full fuel. Another excellent point, Rob. Well, no, no, no. Remember, we're talking the legality of the weight and balance. So, yeah, we're not talking performance. Exactly. Scott I'm keeps talking, talking about performance. Everything well, Scott's that. talking a, a about Saratoga. is like you're, you're, a te- you're a test pilot at that point. A Saratoga is 100% capable of taking off with six passengers in full fuel. So it was a 150, but you're way over the well, 1,600 weight. If you put six passengers well, on. It, a, a, a butt in every single seat. And yeah. Freaking back little seat area shoved to the brim, and the tank's well, topped up eleven gallons a side. You're way well, over if, the gross weight. Don't do it. It's not a good a, idea. You got a five thousand foot runway, and you got full fuel, and as you'd preface this, you can get when, when they run flights. When they run flights, like ferry flights out to Hawaii and back. Okay, they're loading on way more than it says in the POH, and they can you can get a waiver to do it. The, yeah, there's there's margins built in. It's just it's your decision as a pilot. Are we are we pushing those margins every single day, or are we pushing those margins for like weird flight situations, like flying across the well, Pacific right. o- Ocean to reorient a plane and we're calculating the risk and mitigating it and stuff. I guess it's different. My point is, would you want to overload a war- a Piper Warrior? No. They don't have the power to, overdo- to do it. But if you overload something like a 182 or a 206 or a Saratoga, you're probably going to be fine. Everything's depending kosher much, as long as that engine still produces you, all the power. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, and, it's, and, and that is the way of the world and probably many, um, you know, communities, maybe up in Alaska. Right. Stuff like that. You know, humanitarian aid. That's the thing. That's obviously, like you said, we've witnessed. But that's not the rule of thumb, and that's not what I would recommend to people. Well, no, know? I wouldn't say do it, but I'm just saying, like, I don't think that you have to subtract a seat automatically from. Yeah. Yeah. You do, dude. If you want to be legal. Yes, you do. At least one seat. I say well, I have always I said two. I don't ever remember doing that. Two. If I had a two or six, I just considered a four seat. I'd probably remove two seats to save weight and be able to so, store more stuff in so the back. 
Oh, that's common. You're telling me that's an common. archer. You're telling me an archer is only capable of, of carrying three passengers. If you want to go the max range of the airplane. Okay. Well, I guess it depends on where you're going. Safely. 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 Yeah. Safely and legally. Never. Never went by that. No. This is northern Ohio, the land of the freaking nut jobs of aviation. That's why we've seen so many things. We have. We had a fly-in at a grass strip. We'll just... I'll, I'll err on the side of not mentioning where, whose strip it was. Um, <laughs> Knocking tree branches off. <laughs> yeah, they were playing the game flying in and out of the chili cook-off one year, seeing who could knock the most branches off with their airplane at the end of the runway. That's why he stopped having flights. I think his insurance agents was there. Were, was like, yeah, I'm not insuring were, this field with you morons trimming, flying in here. They were trimming the trees. I mean, they seems, were seeing who could knock different. off the bigger branch. That's not a good idea. It's just that's northern Ohio, Lake Erie area, island area flying. You, got, which it's gotten better over the years, mainly because a lot of people are dead now. We used to do stupid stuff like that, but. Yeah, that that doesn't mean it's normal. Doesn't mean yeah. it's legal. Doesn't but, mean it's safe. When my mom was learning to fly, she was told by by a certain somebody who is dead now, not in a flight accident. They died from natural causes. But uh, oh, that, and that's the that's the magic of Northern Ohio. Yeah. Somehow the these weight, guys die of natural causes. She was told that the way to do a weight and balance check is you push if you have a tricycle wheel uh, nose nose wheel aircraft that you push the tail down and if it comes back up it's good that would work on the ground but that tells you nothing about how it's now in a certain airplane that envelope may have worked out to work out in the air as well i don't know that i'm assuming you're talking about a tri-pacer no it was a i can't God, i can't remember what it was it was a twin really? engine twin engine apache yeah it could have been it had six seats and, oh uh, aztec then aztec I yeah, always forget I, your mom I, is technically a pilot, yeah. Scott. But anyway, we should have her on the show sometime. Yeah, no. <laughs> she listens to all these episodes. I know. So. Yeah. Mama oh, Boris. So proud. Oh, we have a, we have a guest slot for you whenever you want. Yeah. We'll cover well, something. Anyway, I remember her telling me that uh, somebody told her. I, I assume they had. They probably had every seat full. I don't know that if you push down on the tail and if it. If it comes back up, you're good to go. That's an old thing. I mean, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, everybody thinks I'm like this huge prude about it, but I try to follow rules now just because the general public's life is in my hands. That um, you've seen stuff go wrong. We all have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't have to dig too deep in YouTube to figure out that person tried that one too many times. It's just it it happens. Eventually it'll get you. You know, but so I mean, just, yeah, err on the side of caution. But yeah, I mean, people used to say that, you know, about a, probably a ton of airplanes. As long as the tail comes back up, you're good. Well, yeah, that may have worked on the ground, you know, so you didn't look like an idiot. But if you would have stalled, so our air, our aerodynamic center of gravity limits are there so that if you were to stall the airplane and you have the center of gravity, you have that airplane loaded, so it's right on the aftmost limit of the center of gravity envelope, that means you're still legal. You're on the aftmost limit. You're not beyond it. You're just on it. And that you're okay. So your weight is within, you know, so 
I don't even know how to say if the weight is within limits and your balance, meaning your center of gravity is within limits and that airplane stalls, the nose will still drop to regain airflow over the wing. That is what our center of gravity envelope is for is so that we can basically let it stall hands off the yoke or the controls. The nose is going to drop and it's going to restore smooth airflow over the wing. You're going to regain flying speed and it may continue to just undulate like that if you don't intervene. But that's why that envelope is there. So yeah, just because it balance, if you don't stall, it's probably never going to be a problem. I have seen airplanes flown um, in very unsafe manners because of this weight and, weight and balance envelope. I've heard stories of, well, I couldn't even, I, I was out of, you know, forward trim. I was out of forward trim, blah, 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 all kinds of stuff. I've heard it, you know, I've seen it done. And it's it's just that's not a safe way to operate. Well, Can it no. be done? And is safe. it done every day? Probably, but that doesn't make it safe, especially for a novice pilot. Well, no, but oh god, yeah. The, if you the, if your aircraft has the horsepower, that is a performance thing. You keep talking about that's performance yeah. based. And even on the flare, you're not talking about power. You have your weight and balance different than a normal weight and balance coming in for a landing that landing could go horrendously wrong very quickly if you come into an airport and yeah. do your landing flare like normal when you're you've messed with the weight and balance numbers beyond what the poh says you should do the occasions it's, 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 it's real ugly real quick the occasions totally. that i've flown when i one time in particular i knew i was way overweight i i knew i was i shouldn't probably should but your have. balance in the 150 your balance is incredibly hard to get wrong weight yeah. is performance all but you're I, talking about scott I is would, performance well right and a 150 does not have a whole lot of that so well i know but you're not exhibiting you're not the only undesirable aircraft characteristic that you're going to experience in that airplane is performance is that, yeah is per, well yeah performance that's it. Yeah. But I knew I was I was way overweight and uh on landing like the the airplane did not feel stable to me. Like it was stable but it didn't it didn't feel right. And I just kept my airspeed up a lot higher than I normally would on final. Yep, and, and that's then the once answer. I got yeah. once I got to the point you know once I got in ground effect I didn't let it slow down until I got into ground effect. And that's when I, you know, I wasn't worried about it. Cause if I, if I drop at that point, it might be a rough landing, but I'm not going to crash, you know? Right. And, and that's the answer. And that's, you know, the, the weight doing a weight and balance may have uncovered what that was. And I mean, I, I miss, I misspoke a second ago. Yeah. I mean, you can have, you can put that airplane out of center gravity. You have a baggage compartment, yeah. And you can have a you know two couple pretty big people and still be legally weight legal weight wise, but yeah, it may be shifting your balance so far aft. I don't remember the envelope in a one fifty, but yeah, uh, it's, I, I mean it's totally right. possible to get it out of the aft. But in normal two people in the two pilot seats in a normal type position, you know, on the track on the seat tracks, you're gonna be you're gonna be within, I would think, but. Uh, I mean, was the situation you're describing, was there, were you questionable? Like, uh, yeah, we might be out of balance on this one before you, or should it have been totally fine? Like, Hey, I've done uh, it. If, if, I had, if I had to do it again, I would take some, 
I would take something out before I took off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah. that is, that is one way you may have been perfect weight. I would, wise, I would not do it again. I would not, it, I would not do it again. With yeah. The 150, the 150 is the, you can overweight it really easily with two people and fuel. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Easy. The, That's what I was trying to say. Out, of, out of balance. You can, if you don't have anything in the storage compartment, oh, I had quite a bit back. back I had quite a yeah, bit. Yeah. That's how you can mess it up and make it tail yeah. heavy and get, it gets really bad flight characteristics. But if you don't, um, so if you look in the POH for like, if it's a prude, now it's, you've, there's something you had to do to make the plane approved for spins. It used to just always be approved for spins. There's some sort of airworthiness directive, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, but uh, it's basically, it's not a, pr- it's not approved for spins or anything. If you have anything in the back, no, because it's that you won't get out of the spin. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, the centrifugal force is going to throw that. The weight and balance can be concentrated so far back, or potentially so far back. It's going to throw the weight to the outside of the turn, which is where people hear like flat spin or whatever. So that's the, that's the concept. You yeah. want that. You want it. You want the nose to be down. You don't want the centrifugal force throwing the tail down, and then you can't recover because you never restore airflow over the wing. That's that's yeah. That's that's the problem. That's a situation you, you like, Rob. You said it perfect. You become the test pilot. Yeah, there's I mean, there's engineer margin in there, but why figure out where those limits are? Why, you know? Yeah. And I understand. Yeah, I'm kind of my my little um, mnemonic there. Buy two more seats than you think you'll ever need. That could force somebody to spend a lot more money than they would have had to. But that ensures that you now have the opportunity if you want to take six people, or you know yourself and five others. Do that, but you're not going to have the range. You may have still have pretty good range, but well, you're not going to have the range as specified in the in the, in the POH. Yeah, you, it you depends on what seats. runway you're taking off of. You get six. No, seats. legally, Scott. Well, legally, okay. yeah. Okay. okay, that is what we're talking about. We all know that they're going to climb fine. Yeah, especially if you have five thousand feet of runway in a Piper right. Saratoga, you're yeah, going to be fine. If you got if you're in a Saratoga and you got five thousand foot of runway. You're gonna have you're gonna have to have some pretty fat people to overload that thing to the point where totally. to the point where it won't perform in reality. Now legally, yeah, you could overload it pretty quickly, but to actually overload it to the point where it will not take off, I mean, you're gonna have to have some pretty fat ass people on there. Well, and remember though, we're not just talking about the actual performance will lift off the ground. You got to remember, I still want it. So think about this. This is actually a two a two two part thing. We're taking off. We're overloaded. We know we are, but we're overweight and we're aft center of gravity out of limits. Okay, we have those two situations happening, which we've all seen probably firsthand. Uh, this situation uh, develop. Uh, well, not this situation. I'm, I'm going to paint a scenario. We've seen the aft and overweight happen and be fine, but the scenario I'm going to paint, let's look at the ramifications. You're overweight. You're out of limits to the aft center of gravity. So you go take off, that engine fails. So now, not only are you not going to glide as well, that's one. Two, you're not going to be as comfortable. Like if you just have to eke out that last little bit of uh, you know lift to clear that tree or that house or whatever that little you know baby's uh hospital that you don't want to go careening into you're not you're much closer to the stall than than you thought because of 
where your center of gravity may be. That you don't even know exactly where the stall is. You're like you're but, a test pilot. Well, well, you typically don't, anyways, just because it's a variable thing depending on weight. But yeah, totally, totally. You know what it is. Worst case scenario, if you you know that if I load this Saratoga to 3,600 pounds gross weight, my stall speed is going to be whatever it is. You know, 79 knots. You know that. Yeah, you're at max. You're you're within the operating limitations of how it's spelled out in the yeah, POH. So, if so, if I'm like, let's say I'm at 3,400 pounds, which is less than the gross takeoff weight, uh, you, we're gonna have a slower stall speed. So, so, but we know worst case scenario, which is the point you're making, Rob, which I 100% agree. You start putting the center of gravity outside of the limits, you don't know what that's shifting it to. Now, if I remember correctly, and it sucks that I don't know this off the top of my head. And aft center gravity is going to tend to lower your stall speed. But when it finally does stall, the nose won't may not fall. Now there's engineer yeah. limits in there, you know, margins like we've talked about, but you don't want to find out where those are, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I mean that, that unless I, I think, you're, unless you're a test pilot, unless you're a test pilot, but you're wearing a chute and you're doing all this high altitude stalls at a safe yeah. altitude to do all that. I feel like, they can do more than what they're published to be able to do. Not all. They, that's not a. That's not a secret. Yeah. Like yeah. they they publish. There's like what right. 20, 30, 40 percent margins yeah. minimums that they put into all of these numbers. Like that's. I'm just like saying. It's not, it's not we, like the aviation's greatest secret. They, they, we, they we've all seen, the, We've all seen what a Saratoga can do, and it's it's pretty impressive. It is. <laughs> yeah. 206 is the same way. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 180, 185, Beaver, all that stuff is awesome. Uh, 206 is one of my dreams. Yeah. 206 is awesome. I mean, for just... Probably even probably, could probably have even a, more of a useful load than the Saratoga, I assume. Or I would some, never... I would never that, in my mind, if you had them both side by side, I would not even... I would walk right oh. out past that 206. The really? only thing that enticed me is that you can go get a turbo 206 on Amphibs, which I think yeah. is what Rob's talking about. You don't think a 206 it, has a better useful load than a Saratoga? About the same? I don't I don't know for sure, but if you start yeah. looking at interior volume, that's what I care about. And yeah. this 206 doesn't have the Ford baggage compartment to help with the weight and balance stuff. That's true, yeah. Everything goes in the back. Yeah. Now, you can go get a cargo pod, and that'll help that. But yeah. Saratoga, plug-and-play perspective... 150 knots, six seats, tons yeah. of fuel. Which 206 is the same, same, same deal. But I oh, mean, I, I that, mean, if if you had two side by side, I'd I'd take the Saratoga too. But yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's has some pretty impressive performance, also though. Oh no 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 oh I uh, yeah performance short field wise the 206 yeah. is probably the winner. I was gonna say but, short short field you probably want a 206 versus a Saratoga, yes. wouldn't you? Yeah. Yes, but. You're at a fringe where I probably, you know, being out of the game, I probably shouldn't be going there anyways. So Saratoga, the places that I would go, you know, the Saratoga will do just fine. So, you know what I mean? And those are most people be like, oh, 1500 feet, 1800 feet. People don't, you know, know the the life that we've kind of lived. You know what I mean? They don't know. You take a Saratoga to 1500 feet. they, They don't, they can't. They can't. Oh, they yeah. haven't seen that. I remember you know, they uh, off, I, remember, I remember somebody landing a, 
a Saratoga into a 1,500-foot runway when it was quite windy out with six passengers. You know, obviously yeah. taking off, but, it, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do it, but you can do it, obviously. Oh, yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff can be done. Yeah, I think we've, I think we've really kind of shown a light on the uh, margins that are factored into these airplanes. And there's a lot to be said for um, airmanship, knowing the airplane, knowing right. the limits, you know, yeah. stick and rudder, and, and knowing that particular aircraft. not recommending anybody fly overweight, but it, if you're flying overweight every day, you know exactly how that plane's going to handle yeah, and under all, yeah, all kinds of, you you know, your every flight, you know, the center of gravity is bouncing around. You just get a right. really good sense, a really good feeling, and you get in tune with that airplane. You know what to expect. All right, and on that terrible sidetrack of a uh, conversation, we'll wrap this up. Um, email. Our preferred method of communication. Uh, my email is f a r a i m at robertberger dot com. B e r g e r the German way, not the sandwich way. Mister Griffin is f a r a i m at leegriffing dot com. G r i f f i n g, and Mister Boris can be reached at f a r a i m at scottboris dot com. B o r e s. Um, good pods is um, what we're schlapping at the end of the episodes right now still uh it's a podcast app we're playing with uh, i'm at rob lee's at lee scott is at boris um that is all i have uh send us comments concerns hate mail over this one i feel like if there's an episode we get hate mail on this Probably might be the one. first one Probably send all the hate mail directed at me yeah, all the hate mail, that is our official hate mail inbox. It's F-A-R-A-M at scottforrest.com. Even if he's not the one in this this episode, it was, it was him anyway. So it works out uh, just as well. Um, I'm probably the most pilot there is. I'm just saying. <laughs> I wouldn't do these things. I just know what these planes are capable of. This, this, That's true. Dozens, yeah. dozens of airports that we've that time at observing things going on in northern Ohio and uh, birthplace of aviation right it's a messy messy wild wild Lake Erie area um, thanks for listening uh, until next time take care thanks guys see ya Scott, you got anything else to add on that? Well, this is a question. Go ahead, man. If yeah. I if I had a tri-pacer and I had full fuel and four people, you know, pilot, three passengers, 
that were 170 pounds each average, would I be overweight? Stand by. <laughs> I already looked it up. No, I wouldn't. How much? How many gallons of gas those hold? Uh, thirty-six. Oh, duh! I knew that. What's the gross weight on those? Uh, well, max useful load is nine hundred pounds. Well, I don't care what that is. What's the gross weight? Uh, empty weight is no gross weight. Well, gross I'm weight. Doing the math in my head. Gross weight is two thousand oh, okay. pounds. Oh, then you're over. I'm coming up with a two thousand two hundred ninety-six pound takeoff weight. What's a what's a gallon of avgas weigh? Six count six pounds. That's what I did. Okay, what's six, uh maybe my maybe um six times two hundred sixteen two hundred sixteen pounds of gas? Yeah. I had a fourteen but see I don't know anything. I'm shooting from the hip and I'm probably gonna end up being right if you go look at that airplane you're about to do. Six I I had a, I put down fourteen hundred pounds. Six times fourteen hundred pounds. The useful load is nine hundred pounds. On that airplane? Yeah. On a specific airplane? Well, on a 1960 and newer Taipacer. Yeah, no, it doesn't, dude, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, I don't know. That That's probably has a 1,400 pound empty weight. You're putting. No, uh, empty weight, 1,100. Empty weight's 1,100 pounds. Who says who? Is that a specific airplane? Standard empty weight for a 1960 PA 22 Yeah, Dude. You need to look at the actual airplane. It's been recovered since then. It's probably got tubes rewelded. It's probably got a fourteen hundred pound empty. Weight. No, you're telling me they yeah. added three hundred pounds? I doubt it. Airplanes gain weight. We Dude, mentioned that in the previous gain, episode. They might gain weight, but not three hundred pounds. Well, hey. maybe not. But remember, that's the standard. And remember, Piper had every incentive to underpublish what that weight was. Yeah, every super cub that has rolled off the line. Yeah, super cub weighs nine hundred eighty pounds. Scott, you go uh, move Don's cub, and it probably weighs nine hundred eighty pounds. Probably. Okay. Well, no, it doesn't. It probably weighs seven hundred. But anyways, the, that's the fact of the matter. Those that's supposed to weigh five fifty. That's the fact of the matter. Piper has underpublished empty weights since the beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> they have. They have. And and I'm not it's, saying and may, maybe fourteen hundred. I was shooting from the hip. You're acting like I'm supposed to know every single thing, but I'm I mean just that's messing with you, Lee. Well, I'm not. I'm not messing around. I just feel like if you put four people on a tri-pacer with full fuel and you had a five thousand foot runway, you wouldn't have a whole lot to worry about. Okay, so hold on. Let's back this up real quick. So can we say okay? So if eleven hundred is a standard, can you give me that since 1960 it may have gained one hundred pounds? I, it's I been recovered. It, okay, yeah, we'll give it. Radios, we'll give you a hundred. Yeah, just jerk tubing yeah. getting re. Okay, yeah, radios get. Yeah, okay. I, I, I mean that stuff gets. Does get, yeah, I give, does, I give you a hundred. Yeah. Okay, so that's twelve hundred. Yeah. That's a twelve hundred pound empty weight, right? If you give me a hundred yeah. pounds, so that means we're still ninety six pounds over. No, well, I guess you're right. Yeah. 